I'm Justin Lockie, the lead guitarist from Editors. I grew up listening to a lot of college rock from America, a lot of Nirvana and stuff. And then didn't really do anything musical until about 13 when you go to the rehearsal room with your mates and try and start a band. It sounds shit, sounds terrible. You're all out of tune, the drummer's terrible and you're nowhere near as good as the records you're listening to, but you think you are. Then everyone who's in that room thinks it's the best thing in the world that's ever been written. And then you just build on that. You add an extra chord, the drummer gets better. And then you end up writing tunes, and then you're like, oh, wow, I wrote this. And then you realise that that's all that anyone else has ever done. But it emotionally stays with you because... There is a thing when you're creating music which you feel which kind of changes your life. Music, it's all I've ever known and all I've ever wanted to do. Which is why I'm properly excited that hearables are poised to make music and the sheer experience of it even more powerful. In this episode, we're going to look at how hearables are going to improve the way we listen and add an amazing new dimension to our experience of music. Mission Winnow presents Now Hear This, a series on the future of hearables. I have a pretty vivid memory of the first time that I was playing around with sound, actually. My bandmate, Benjamin John Power, who composes music for TV and film. I must have been about six years old. One Christmas I was bought an old Casio keyboard or something like this, and I remember writing a song on it. But, you know, my writing a song entailed of me just hitting keys when the demo was playing. Decided that I was in a position enough to share it with somebody, (laughs) share it with an audience. I invited my granddad up at the time and I said, Granddad, I've written this song. He said to me, The best thing about that song, Ben, is that nobody else in the world has ever written it. Ben began tapping away at a Casio. Did our ancestors just start beating out a rhythm with whatever was lying around the cave, or one day finding themselves breaking out into a primitive form of singing together? Is there just something innate about music and humanity, from its earliest inception to the tech frontiers hearables are now pushing? One for comedy writer-performer extraordinaire Adrian Gray to answer, who by this penultimate episode is virtually an honorary professor of something or other. I'm Arnold Lappett, professor of acoustic sound at the Royal Guildhall, and I'm on a journey to understand the power of the world's favourite type of noise, music. I want to explore the science behind how music works, do away with all the inaccessible and pretentious terminology, and do it pro populo sign mora. Music is everywhere. It's in TV, film, and perhaps most notably, songs. Yet maybe the most beautiful thing about music is that it connects us. I mean, just look at the conga. We all have that one moment when we first encounter the true power of music. Mine was when I was 13 years old, and I think it mirrors the experience of many teenage boys.
Yes, you guessed it. I was sitting in on a rehearsal of an opera that my father was directing for the Royal Opera House. Now, it was Pagliacchi by Ruggiero Leon Savallo. I know, a bit cliche, but to my young ears, it sounded so new and fresh. As I sat in the stalls, I heard a young Montserrat Caballé open her mouth. I produced a sound that moved my very soul. I can only describe it as a combination of a roaring tidal wave, a dove coughing up a plum, and the distant car alarm of an MG Metro. Just beautiful. I was so moved that I began shaking in my seat, crying and frothing at the mouth. A true demonstration of music's incredible power. Of course, it later turned out that I'd been bitten by a badger while on a hunt with my nanny earlier that day and was suffering from furious rabies. But in my opinion, some of the shaking and frothing was from the music. From that day forth, music became my life. And with nothing but hard work, graft, determination, I managed to gain a position as an assistant director at my father's opera company. Incredible how things come full circle like that. Most of what we listen to today, most recorded music, it isn't storytelling. It is simply what has been recorded and duplicated and then mass produced and streamed to everybody. And it's like going into a Victorian museum and seeing all of the butterflies on pins in the cases. It's somebody's attempt to say, look, I captured something, but it doesn't have the joy of it in the wild. Nick Hun, our perennial tech guru, and hearable's companion. And you see this with so many recordings today because the actual recording you listen is probably cleaner than if you'd been in an audience. You don't actually hear the sound of people playing instruments, the sort of the fingers on the keyboard, the plucking of strings. That's all edited out when you're in a recording studio. So we don't get the real experience. And if we can play with the way that we actually present sound to our ears and take effect of what we're doing in our head, we can get a much more intense experience than you do by just saying, let's actually push up the recording quality when most of us can't hear it. However talented a musician is, at the moment they're not putting much imagination in. It's still, I'm going to stand on a stage and I'm going to perform in front of people. It's not performing with people, it's performing at people we can actually look at atmosphere and storytelling because that's the element that we've largely taken away from sound and music and we need to put it back and now we've got the capabilities to put it back. For the 200,000 years Homo sapiens have been grunting and drumming around Earth, recorded music has been here for the blink of an eye. The first sound recording device was presented to the world by Edward Leon Scott de Martinville in 1858, 20 years before Edison invented the phonograph with its ability to play back sound. Mary had a little lamb, its feet was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. Fast forward to today, and we're entering the realm of cinema quality spatial audio on the go. I grew up in East Orange and there was a place called the Ormont Theatre. 
Uh, my best friend Steven, his uncle actually owned the movie theater. So we got to actually listen to things in the theater. And I got to really see, you know, exactly how the systems work. So that was my first version of hearing anything that was more than just one channel. You can't help but get involved sometimes. Oh boy. I think it was a movie that came out around when I first started hearing this stuff. It was called Earthquake. And they actually had uh, these subwoofers when the earthquake started that would just pretty much rattle the entire theater. They set them up especially just for this movie. And I remember thinking to myself, it's just absolutely mind-blowing that they would do something like this. And it just sounded incredible. New Jersey music producer and DJ, Kerry Chandler, who's been instrumental in shaping the sound of house music. My godfather, Mickey Mohammed, was one of the lead writers for Cool in the Gang. So I used to go and sit in in studio sessions and he would show me tricks and audio tricks and things like that. And I just knew immediately that's what I wanted to do for a living. My dad had always had um, ridiculous sized speakers in the house. In our hallway, in the living room, down at both ends of the hall, he had voice of the theaters. And they're really meant for movie theaters. I mean, every floor had music in it, in some capacity. And every floor had turntables and records and music. There was always music in that house, so I've kind of been spoiled with sound. Growing up in a family, there were just a bunch of sound engineers and professionals. So kind of just carried the torch and just kept doing what I wanted to do with the same experience and just, you know, finding new gear that sounds even better than the last things that we've used. At just 13, Kerry began warming up for his DJ dad in Jersey nightclubs with a little help from milk crates to reach the turntables. His love of new ways of making and creating sound brought him into contact with Dolby, allowing you to hear your favorite artist in the same room as you or the experience of sitting directly in the middle of a symphony orchestra or nightclubs around the world? Well, Dolby is really the first people that really put surround sound together. Uh, the difference with Dolby Atmos is now, besides just things going across one wall, one wall, one wall, one wall, one wall, and back wall, these things now go over your head and they don't have a specific speaker that they're going to like one channel. These things are now called objects and they can move any position in the room and it'll make you feel things and hear things like over top of you and around you. Like, so if a helicopter flies over top of you, it's flying over top of you. If you hear a missile go by, it'll sound like a missile went by you and you can see it take off and you can hear it go to that specific spot. Rather than it just being seven points in a room that you pan them to make it sound that way. These things are now individual spots that you can actually go to. For his 2022 album, Spaces and Places, Kerry recorded a track inside 24 of the world's greatest nightclubs, capturing the unique atmosphere of the different venues. Kerry turned each club into a temporary studio and created songs best suited to each club's distinct personality. And in addition, the entire album was mixed by him in Dolby Atmos. One of the first clubs I've done abroad was Ministry of Sound. They actually had Dolby Atmos in the club and they wanted to have a party to showcase Dolby Atmos 
the environment and the club to see what can be done and what was possible. So I said, oh yeah, I'm all for that. Let's try it. I did my entire set in Dolby Atmos. We encoded and mixed every single song I was playing in Dolby Atmos and it worked beautifully. I mean, it was so immersive. I could take things and make sounds go around the club like snare drums or take a vocal and throw it around the room as I'm DJing. And I started using these brand new surround sound reverbs and they were absolutely incredible. This kind of spatial audio and hearable tech are a match made in music heaven. Meanwhile, I wonder how our professor is getting on with his investigations into the power of music. Music is more than just a series of notes. In fact, it's as much what's happening between the notes as what's happening in the notes themselves. In many ways, I prefer the spaces in the music to the actual music. Space is an important concept in all of music, not least the physical space that music occurs within. To learn about this, I paid a visit to Douglas Carmichael, conductor of the London Philharmonic Orchestra, rehearsing in the Albert Hall. Thanks so much for giving us your time, Douglas, and can I just say, I really like your bow tie. Oh, thank you very much. Whenever you listen to live music in a concert hall like this, it feels so powerful. How does it interact with the physical space? Yes, the acoustics in the Albert Hall are designed very specifically to allow the orchestra to have certain moments reflected back at them at certain times. So if we just move over here, for instance, we can actually hear an echo of what was performed around 10 minutes ago. Is that him? Is that him? He looks like a right tit. Who has a bow tie? That's so tacky. Oh, uh, let's move away from this area, shall we? Uh, wh wh what about this spot? Oh, uh, this is for the timpani player. It actually echoes 11 or 12 minutes ago. What do you think of this bow tie? It's a bit tacky. He's renowned professor, so obviously I want to make a good impression and you know, destroy me inside if you found it funny or something. It'll really push me over the edge. That, that's incredible. Now back to my bandmate, Ben Power. When I first started my path as a professional musician, I was playing in a band called... Are we allowed to swear on this? Yeah. Okay, in a band called Fuck Buttons, and the kind of modus operandi was to fill up the audio canvas with as much as possible. I mean, very much in like the wall of sound technique, not to leave any space unfilled, to completely oversaturate. But within that oversaturation, try to find a space for melody or some semblance of something that people can connect with, as well as the very physical assault that comes with something like a wall of noise. I went to watch bands from about the age of 13 onwards with a mate. And I remember how much it can change you physically by standing in a room with a couple of thousand other strangers having music blasted at you at incredible volumes. It wasn't until I was 15 that I was ever actually truly blown away by the power of music and that was watching Stereo Lab at Reading Festival in 1995 on the Melody Maker stage playing the loudest 
weirdest music I'd ever heard in my entire life. And I, I literally stood still for the whole set and couldn't believe what I was hearing or seeing. It's primal though, right? You get a primal response when people listen to music like that. It's almost a fear and elation at the same time. If you go and watch a really heavy band who are maxing out, it shakes all your bones in your body. Especially if there's the low end, it physically shakes your body. Me being shaken to the bones, Ben being physically assaulted by a wall of noise, it turns out there's something in this bodily experience of music. So we usually think that we listen through our ears. However, we a very big percentage of the perception actually travels through the body, vibrations that travel up and down through the cavities of the body, and the resonance in different parts of the body. I'm Paul Oman. I started my career as a classical musician, studying classical composition, and eventually transitioned in the direction of sound technology. I was especially interested in the spatial dimensions of listening. And currently my work is very research-oriented, actually looking at fundamental questions around what spatial sound is and how it affects us and how it affects our environment. Paul works at Spatial Sound Institute in Budapest in Hungary with what has to be the best personal sound system anywhere in the world. We built the sphere, which is for us it's mainly an instrument for research. It's a highly sort of controlled environment, completely spherical pod that one person can sit inside. And within it, you can see the whole inside of the sphere as one large spherical speaker. Uh, of course, it consists of many components which are built into the walls. When you sit inside in the dark there, you will be quite unable to localize that there's any speakers. So you hear sounds you know, sort of floating around you or at a big distance, completely surrounding you or almost going physically through you or being within you. And it, you don't have the reference that there is an actual medium that is producing that sound. So you have sort of very high-end listening experience and at the same time there's also physical vibrations conducted through your body, which all work together sort of as transparently as we can get it so that the whole experience is really like being in a fully simulated physical environment. So really focusing on getting that depth and warmth of experience, which actually is how we experience sound in our daily lives. There is the need to highly personalize the response to sound signals. So what might work very convincingly for one person doesn't really work convincingly for another. Simply because our ears are very personal. Everyone's pair of ears is differently shaped and we have basically trained ourselves to parse the information that we get through our own personal ears. So this is a matter of neural connections that have been made in the brain through many, many years of listening from the moment we're born or even while we're in the womb. So. This process is highly personal and it's not one size fit all. 
as spatial audio gets personal, then as consumers and creators, doesn't that give us much greater power over what we listen to? One for Gavin Kearney, the surround sound spatial audio guy who worked with the BBC, Dolby and Abbey Road Studios. How you listen will be highly personalised to you. So what enables this is what's known as object-based audio. Object-based audio is a new paradigm, particularly in broadcasting, that allows you to rethink how you can consume your immersive audio in the home. So a standard stereo mix is delivered to you from a broadcaster. You know, that's like them delivering you a cake, right? But if I gave you the ingredients to that cake, so all the individual audio elements and a recipe to make the cake, then you could change the recipe to your liking. And so you can change all of these elements at the consumer end, rather than sticking with what has been dictated by the original mix engineer. Which will make each of us our own engineers, putting the power back in our hands to choose what we want from the ingredients. The technological possibilities are endless. But these advancements might just be another way to do what music has always done, bring people together. You know, post-pandemic, I think we all realise the importance of audio in our lives, especially over Zoom, for example. But what's really exciting is the power of audio to bring people together into shared spaces. One of the things that we do at the University of York, where I work, we do a lot of work with shared immersive experiences, so shared virtual spaces for the metaverse. So that feeling that you are there with somebody, it could be like at a virtual concert, for example, and you have the same shared virtual acoustic, or that the people are here with you in the room and you're engaging with them and the acoustic of the space is rendered virtually on top of the real world sounds that you're hearing. So it's an augmented reality experience. And from the sublime to the ridiculous. Music and sound have always evolved and changed in exciting new ways. I mean, look at the great composers. Whether it was Beethoven's first symphony, his second symphony, or his third symphony, you just didn't know what was going to come next. But now there's a change on the horizon for sound, something called the metaverse and spatial audio. While many have called me a bit of a Luddite, I always do my best to keep up with new technology, which is why when I received a fax asking me to try out this metaverse, I was delighted. I headed down to Sandbox Digital Studios in London to try it out. Hi, I'm Professor Luppet. Hi, I'm Steve. Uh, So, do you know much about the metaverse? I've heard it's like one of those video games. (laughs) Well, you can use it to play games. Not really for me, I must say. I once played Pong in an arcade while on a date with my first wife, and I nearly passed out from the dullness. Okay, well, this is a bit different. Sure it is. Okay, come on, let's try this. So what we're going to do is we're going to put you in a busy 1950s London high street, like you're walking along Oxford Street, okay? Right, okay then. Am I going to see funny little video game characters like the Pac-Man and the Super Mario? Oh my god. It's like I'm actually there. Ah! What the? Oh my god. Uh, Professor, are you okay? You're shaking and frothing at the mouth. See? I knew it wasn't just the rabies. I knew it. In the next episode, we'll be looking at the future through the lens of the much-hyped metaverse. 
as we go and explore the metaverse, we can create our own metaverse experiences and our own metaverse worlds. We need to think about, okay, well, how are they going to sound? 